Turn with me, if you would, to John's first letter. We'll read the last little bit of this um, letter that we've been studying this year. We conclude our series in knowing the Father's heart. I've titled this sermon, I, I have a mixed relationship with sermon titles. I recognize that some people really like them, and I make stuff up most of the time. I mean, I know you know that because, I mean, I, something had to end up on the page, but I normally don't think much about it. Sorry if that was more behind the veil than you needed. But this morning, I'm, uh, I actually did think of, uh, quite a lot about it because what we're looking at and what John is saying to us is these are things we can be certain of. And in a world where we find so much changes rapidly, that disappoints, that disillusions, it's a good thing to be certain of things. And that's how John leaves his, um, his church. So let's stand together to hear God's word. Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not. But there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we who are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's word. Let's pray. Help us to know, God. Not a knowledge that just leads to trivia but a knowledge that leads to life. That we would know things and be grounded in things and be certain of things so that we might enjoy life to the fullest in and with and through you. So do these things, we pray. Because only you can. And we are desperate we have no other choice, and we have no other help, and we have no other hope but you. So, Father, show up, we pray, for your glory and our good. And all God's people together said, amen. Be seated.
All right, let's talk for just a minute about test-taking anxiety. Come on, you know I have anxiety, so this is no surprise to you that tests would give me an abnormal amount of anxiety. I remember in college, my first of many times in taking Greek, I failed Greek a couple times. I remember thinking that I was going to master an entire semester of Greek in one night. That's not even the punchline. Why are you laughing at me? So I stayed up all night for an exam at 8 o'clock the next morning. At some point, I even took some sort of like multivitamin type thing that had a lot of, um, I don't know, there were a lot of things I couldn't pronounce in the uh, name of it. Guys that lifted a lot of weight said that it would be good for me. (laughs) They were not correct. And I remember sitting down on uh, exam morning in the classroom, being handed the exam and being given the conditions upon which successful completion of the exam would, uh, would go. And everything that I, every flashcard, everything that I had studied, every single thing that I had looked at the night before and the morning before, gone. Nothing. I mean, even the little crickets were like, we got nothing. I say all this because tests don't impart knowledge. Tests reveal knowledge. You might be able to go in and cram study for something and answer some questions right. But to know something, it really has to be deep down in you. John is given, and we've talked a lot about this, John has given a lot of tests over the course of this letter. There was a test of the consciousness of sin, the test of obedience, the test of freedom from habitual sin, the test of love for other Christians, the test of belief, the test of overcoming the world and Satan. All of these tests were designed with one thing in mind, assurance of God's love. But here's where we get sideways, and I want to make sure that I'm clear about this. This is a helpful description that I read this week. These tests are a means to assurance. They are not the grounds of your assurance. They are a means, a way of revealing what's going on, but they are not the grounds of what's going on. They are a means to our certainty, but not the grounds of our certainty. Listen, Jesus, the Son of God, who died for sins and rose from the dead, is the grounds of our certainty. That is what we bank everything on. Our knowledge of the smile of heaven, the love of the Father, the acceptance that we enjoy, the adoption that is ours, is the assurance that we have. All of this is rooted and grounded in Christ. And it's at this point that if we confuse 
the grounds for our certainty, with the means of testing our certainty, what we're going to do is we're going to find ourselves lost. The good news goes away, and we go back to performing for our righteousness, hoping it'll be enough, hoping that God's happy enough with my performance today, or so distracted by all the other people doing so much worse that he'll maybe leave me alone. Friends, if you mess up what the grounds of your assurance is, the grounds of your assurance is in Jesus. If Jesus is in you, then these tests will do nothing but confirm the knowledge that's down deep in you. But it's hard, isn't it? Because just like I did that morning that I blanked on my test, for just a moment, I too felt like I was worth the nothing that I scored on the test. But Greek wasn't down deep in my heart. Languages and I don't get along very well. And maybe you've had that time too, where you have failed the test. And you go, I'm in it now. If you miss means and the grounds, it's not good. But John wants us to go and know things. And, and, and we've alluded to this verse, and now he's written this verse. In verse 13, I write all these things, all the tests, all the things that he's covered previously in this letter. Why has he written all of it? He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So I want to talk this morning about things that we can be certain of. Because of Jesus, we can be certain that God hears our prayers. Because of Jesus, we can be certain that God protects his people. And because of Jesus, we can be certain that everything um, that everything that we have is a gift from God. And that ultimately, when it's all said and done, we can be certain that we know that only Jesus will ever satisfy us. Only Jesus will ever truly 100% satisfies. So how can we be certain that God hears our prayers? Once we've been assured of the grounds of our certainty, what then? This is what I get all the time, right? We talk a lot about what the gospel is and what the grounds of our assurance is, and we get a so what type question. Well, so what? And I'll counter back sometimes and say, well, so what? How is your prayer life going? Oh, I love that. That's always, I'm the, I'm the life of the party when I get invited. I don't get invited to a lot of places. But when I do, I don't ask that question either because it kills the room. How is your prayer life? Seriously, how is it? Do, do you feel like there's vitality there? Do you feel like there's joy there? Do you feel like there's vibrancy there? Here's why it's so important to get the grounds of everything right, because the enemy wants to distract, distort, to cause doubt. Assurance, the things that we know, is not the end of the journey. Like, it's not you beat the level, you've arrived. Okay, I got my assurance now. Good. 
Now start living. Now start living. Assurance is not the end of the journey, but the beginning. Once we are assured, there is now a life to live. I love what Kevin said last week in his sermon out of Second Peter, where he said that everything that we're doing in this life in Christ is not for nothing. It is training. It is practice for the life that we will one day enjoy. We are rehearsing our future into our present. We are preparing for the life of the world to come now. Prayer is no different. It's training us. It is preparing us. The first place where we see the freedom, that this assurance that, that we, are, we are alive because of Jesus is in prayer. God enjoys our presence before him in prayer because he loves us. Look at verse 14. John says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, there are two things that John says. First is that prayer is effective when our hearts and God's heart are aligned. And the second thing is that God actually hears us. So how, how do we then? How do we align our hearts with God's heart? You might be led to, to ask at this point. How do we know how to ask anything according to his will? Well, look. As we gaze upon Jesus, as we grow in our love for Jesus, in our affection for Jesus, as we learn about him and hear him and his, and his spirit is at work within us, transforming us and changing us, and we're not studying Jesus as, a, as an academic discipline, but we are but we are communing with Jesus as a people in love, we begin to learn both what displeases God and what pleases God. We see what God says no to and what God says yes to. And we begin to not only pursue those things in how we live, but we pursue those things in how we pray. Listen, to those of you that have been married for any, any stretch of time, by now, You've learned what encourages your spouse, what discourages your spouse. What really lights your, the, the eyes of your spouse up and makes, the, makes their world just sing. You know these things because you've spent time with them. Because you know them and you know their heart. And your desire to see your spouse uh, just enjoy life is not because you try to get something in return, but because you love them. Right? At least in our, in our most honest moments, we're not trying to use people and get something in return. And it's so the case with us and the Lord that as we, as we know him, as we love him, and as we experience the freedom that is the new life that we now have in him, we, we are changed. And we're changed in such a way that even what we begin to ask about and pray about and seek out begins to change. Because here's the thing, prayer can be a place where our self-orientation is most readily exposed. When we focus exclusively and only on our needs, our healing, our mercies, our protection, our relief, what happens? 
when that becomes the end of our prayers, the kingdom gets lost. Those things aren't bad things to pray, but when those things become the only things that we pray, I think we're missing the heart of God. What did Jesus say? This is where Jesus was incredibly uh, counterintuitive and yet so incredibly wise. In Matthew's gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, listen to what Jesus says. He, he, he looks around and he points out in an object lesson in the sermon, look at the birds of the air. Look at the text. He says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Can I tell you why I think it is that we tend to collapse down and begin to just focus on those needs that are right there in front of us? I think it's because we don't believe that God actually sees us and knows us and hears us. And we're afraid that he's forgotten about us. But Jesus said, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But what to do instead, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added. God knows what the immediate material needs of our hearts are, so pray bigger prayers. Not to the expense of those things, but knowing that God knows those things. Keep the long view in front of you. Align your heart to God's heart and believe that he loves you, that he knows you and he cares for you. And because of these things, he hears you. There must be no doubt that God hears your prayers, that we have access to the throne of grace, and that God is delighted to have us before him. God is delighted to have us before him. And he welcomes us there. He's not impatient with us that he hears us. Because see, if you're going to understand prayer in this way, if you're going to understand prayer in this way, you've got to understand how John sees prayer. Prayer is not communicating to acquire petitions or to somehow force God's hand, but it's rather communing with God. What we need at the end of all things is not God's things, but God himself. Do you hear me? What we need at the end of the day is not God's things, it's not the stuff. God isn't a means to the end, beloved. God is the end. Do you understand that? When we view God as a means to an end, what we're really doing is what John's getting ready to warn us about at the end of the letter. God, you're great. If you would just help me get that, that'd be awesome. God isn't a means to the end. God's the end. Listen to this. God loves you enough to hear your prayers and either grant them to you because they are for your best or withhold what you have asked because he knows best. 
if we're going to talk about knowing the Father's heart, if we're going to talk about believing that God is for us, not against us, if we're going to talk about the fact that God is not ticked off at you, that he actually loves you, that he actually sent Jesus because he loves you, not to make him love you. If we're going to believe that about God, then we have to also believe that at the end of the day, God hears every prayer that you pray. And even though the answer may not be yes, it is not because God is stingy and it's not because God's mad at you. And it's not because God can't stand you. It's because he actually knows best what is for you. He's either going to give you what you've asked for or withhold it because he knows best. But ultimately, God is hearing and answering prayers. Do you know what scares me? What scares me is that if God would actually grant me every dumb thing I've ever prayed for. There are certain things that I know in this world, and that is I do not know a lot. In verses 15 through 16, John gives us an example of a prayer, a type of prayer that God hears and will respond to favorably. And that is praying for a brother or a sister that has fallen into sin. Now, I'm going to leave aside that, that phrase, a sin leading to death, for just a minute. Um, I'll come back to it. Throughout this letter, one of the tests, one of the means uh, of, of, of assurance has been the love test. So John here puts the love test to practical application. What a, and what a beautiful expression of love for our brother or our sister who has fallen into sin. Instead of wagging our finger or our tongue at them, we actually go before the Lord and we pray for them. And that God hears our prayers. We we turn away from finger-wagging and tongue-wagging and feeling self-righteous or turning away in selfishness, and we go and we pray for them. And John says there's power in that. There's power in that. And beloved, what that requires is, is vulnerability, right? It requires work. Remember I said, uh, I, I've said it at some point, I don't remember when. Bearing one another's burden doesn't mean my plate's particularly light today, so I've got some extra room to take your burdens on. Bearing one another's burdens means that I will already keep shouldering my load and take yours on too. Love is not convenient. Love is not clean. Love doesn't fit in neat little boxes. Love is messy and complicated because life is messy and complicated. And, and this saying, there, there is a, there's a beautiful level of vulnerability that this text invites us into to actually go and to, and to go to a brother or a sister um, who you trust to be a steward of your story. And, and I grant you that, that not everyone um, is in that same place of trust in everyone's life, but there ought to be somebody. There ought to be somebody in our lives who can be a steward of our story as such, where we can go and, and bear our heart and our soul and say, I don't want to be this way. I'm stuck and have a brother or a sister come and pray and pray fervently for us. What a beautiful expression of love this is. And John says this is a prayer that God hears and that God answers. Now, so what is the sin that leads to death? Um, likely this is someone who has embraced false doctrine and hopes to lead someone else astray with this false doctrine. 
Here's the thing, though, and I want you to be careful with this. I don't actually know who has committed the sin. So I'm going to just pray for everyone. And maybe you could too. That's the first thing. We know that God hears our prayers. Here's the second thing. The, the next thing that we know for sure is that Jesus protects his people. Look at what John says in verse 18. Verse 18 says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. So uh, we need to do a little bit of sleuthing, a little bit of context clues here, right? John made clear in chapter one that he knows that Christians will continue to wrestle with sin. And even just a few verses earlier, he commanded that we pray for Christians who are struggling with sin. So I don't believe that John has uh, done an about face here two verses later to say that Christians won't struggle with sin. Here's what I do think he's saying. John's simply saying that if the grounds of our confidence is in what Jesus has done and that we have put our faith and our trust in him and are united to him by the power of the Spirit, there will be a pattern of new behavior resultant from our new birth. John is getting us to the how. How does this new birth need to lead to new behavior? It's because Jesus protects us. Jesus protects us. it's, It's Jesus who he's talking about, but he who is born of God, that is Jesus. He who is born of God protects us, and the evil one does not touch us. We are protected from the evil one, verse 18, and the evil world, verse 19. I heard a sermon this week where the pastor said quite emphatically and plainly that we need to stop reducing the Christian life to principles and precepts and start recognizing that the faith that we hold is, in fact, first and foremost, a supernatural faith. So, and, and that there are, there are real demons, real powers, real principalities, real evil, real warfare, and that all of this, and, and I mean All of it has been defeated and will one day be destroyed by the real Son of God, Jesus Christ. There is real power for the blood of Jesus in our present day lives. It is not that, well, I just have to be really, really thankful. Yeah, be thankful, but also appropriate the fact that Jesus' blood is powerful and Jesus' spirit is blowing in the world. And that spirit that is in you, that has brought you from death to life, has united you to the risen, reigning Son of God, who is at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning even now, and so that mysteriously, by faith, we are connected to Jesus. And therefore, he says, what in the world can this world do to you? Greater is he that is in you that is in the world. In this world, you may have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is not because it's just good ideas. It's because it's spiritual reality. Because you and I and everyone that bears the name of Jesus Christ is united to him. And he goes to battle for us and conquers and vanquishes all of his and our enemies. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. There is not a single temptation that can overcome you because Jesus, your older brother, goes to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world.
Jesus protects us from that which could really do us harm. And just because we can't see it, explain it, or quantify it, doesn't make it insignificant or incidental. It is as uh, St. Patrick on his breastplate, Christ who is behind us and in front of us, above us and beside us, in order to subdue all of his and our enemies. Beloved, this is the this is the waltz of the Christian life. This is what Kevin was talking about last week. This is what it looks like to repent and, and, and see our sins for what they are, to see them as, a, as an offense against God and God alone, to believe, to both uh, look at the sacrifice of Jesus as a real thing that Jesus did for you and for me in our weakness and because of our sin, because we, we could not save ourselves, to believe in the gospel, to actually pray that God would appropriate the blood of Jesus into our lives, that we would be transformed and that we would be changed, and then that by the power of the Spirit blowing behind us, that we would then go and fight. We would fight to begin to live the, li- to live the life that we were designed and made to live. Not a life of defeat and not a life of being crushed by sin, but a life that is new and vibrant and alive in Jesus. Repent and believe and fight. This, this is the dance of our lives. And it's not like you're going to find the magic equation that you repent and you believe and you fight enough that you've all of a sudden conquered life because life keeps happening. But we repent and we believe and we fight until that day when the fight is no more and Jesus says it's done. And we're raised and sin is no more. And all sad things have been made untrue. We don't fight alone. Our big brother comes with us and fights for us and alongside of us. And sometimes even in spite of us. Here's the last thing. So we know that God hears our prayers. We know that Jesus protects his people. And third thing is that we know that only Jesus will ever satisfy. Only Jesus will ever satisfy. Look at what John says in verse 20. God has sent his son, has sent his son Jesus into the world, incarnate, fully God and fully man, the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to offer himself as our substitute and sacrifice to rescue us from the dominion of sin and death and grant to us the perfect righteousness of himself. Verse 20, and we know that the son of God has come. Not only has the son of God come, here's the gift, here's what God has done. God sent his son And God has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Just an aside here, by the way, um, stop being impatient with people that don't get it. God grants understanding. Not you. Not me. You didn't figure this thing out. God gave it to you. Let's keep going. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Now, this beautiful text of scripture, John could have easily stopped here. He didn't need to go on in the letter, and yet he does. He does. The fact that we're able to know and hear and understand and appropriate any of this is a sheer gift of God's grace. 
God has revealed himself and God has drawn near and God has opened our eyes. God has inhabited our hearts. God has changed us, is changing us, and will ultimately one day fully conform us in Jesus. In this glorious ascription, we could have just said amen and gone on and had a great day, but, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there or, or leave us alone. He, he concludes with a so what? So what are we going to do then? And here's the so what. If all this is true, he's calling us to get out of the hot tub of grace and fight. The Christian life is know and be grounded in the confidence of what God has done. And then because of that confidence, go and be ruthless then with anything in your life that would compete or clamor for the affections of your heart that belong to God alone. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the command. This is what we must do by the power of, a, of, of the Spirit. We, we don't do this um, in order to get assurance. We do this out of the basis of our assurance because we know that what we have in Jesus is rock solid. We can then go and begin to ruthlessly dismantle any idol that's in our life that would compete or that would, that would grab our affections and turn them away from God. When God becomes a means to something else rather than the end, you know you've got an idol. Okay, God, but I really need you to answer this prayer in this way. Why? What would happen for you if you've got it? <laughs> or what would it do for you if you lost it? We're called to turn back from idols. We're called to, to root out of our lives potentially good things or helpful things that become ultimate things. Now, look, your idol could be your family, could be your kids, could be your spouse, could be anything else. By root out, I don't mean you stop having them as your family. Don't be silly. By root out, what I mean is identify the fact that they have taken the spot that is reserved for Christ alone. And then dance the waltz of the gospel there. Repent of that. Do the deep heart work that God enables you to do by a spirit of why has this person become an idol? Why has this thing become an idol? Would that God would allow us to become utterly ruthless with ourselves as we ask these questions. Is there anything besides God that I think I must have in order to be happy? Honestly. Or this one. Is there anything besides God that is driving my life, causing me to do things that are contrary to his commands? Or is there anything in, that acts as a false motive to keep, uh, to, to keep God's commands? Fear? Need for approval? All of it's there. And so John says, as a pastor, keep yourself from idols. Look, today is Palm Sunday. I'm sorry I didn't um, do more Palm Sunday thingies. Every year, it's a reminder to me of this fact, that Jesus was not the king that the people wanted. He was the king that the people needed. 
our hearts are all the time finding things, uh, discovering things, seeking things, clamoring for things that we want more. We want them more than Jesus. And you would think uh, that eventually God would get tired of us. But go back to point A. God's not tired of you. He's pursuing you because he loves you. And he loves you too much to leave you alone. You and I don't need something to make us happy or wealthy or secure or healthy. We need a savior. We need whatever we get from God and whatever he withholds, we don't need. And we trust that God is being good to us rather than menacing, good to us rather than forgetting us, good rather than stingy. Do you think that God is stingy? God has lavished us, lavished us with his grace. So what is the idol? What is the idol today? Because it may change tomorrow. What's the idol today that you've used as a substitute or stand-in because you aren't sure what you have from God is enough? What keeps you from trusting the Father's heart and standing and the certainty of your status before him? Beloved, when you do see your idol and it's there, I promise you, if we spent any time over coffee or conversation, we'd be able to figure out pretty quick probably what it is. They don't do a very good job of hiding. They just do a terrible job of saving. When you see your idol, be ruthless. Ask God to help you cut it out. Ask him by the power of Jesus' blood to help you put it to death. And then trust, know for certainty what is true, that God, the God of heaven and earth has given himself for you, delights in you, and is going to one day raise you to enjoy life everlasting with him. I told you that First John is a favorite of New Testament Greek classes. He doesn't have a lot of vocabulary. He has about 250, 300 vocabulary words. He says a lot of uh, things over and over and over again. Do you know why that's helpful? Because I forget things. I need to be reminded a lot. You do too. But praise God. He has written these things so that we may know that in him, We have life.